0: Uh, when I was in youth group, uh, I went on this uh, epic uh, camping trip. Uh, my youth pastor decided it would be a good thought uh, to take, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 of us up to a Gunquin National Park uh, up in Canada. Uh, I think it was like the end of July or something, and uh, and we were going to be camping for o- about a week. Uh, it's the type of camping trip where you see nothing man-made. Uh, it's that you kind of see the sign towards the camp, the base camp, where it's like, hey, no gas for like the next ninety miles or something like that. Like you're in the middle of absolute nowhere, but you see nothing man-made. It's beautiful. You canoe uh, lakes and rivers, and in between the lakes and rivers, you're literally putting the canoe on your back, uh, on your shoulders, and you're carrying it. Uh, to your next spot, and uh, so it's a hard, grueling trip, but it was just so, so cool. And uh, I read the uh, I read the packing list, and it heard them explain kind of why we need each thing on the list. And uh, when they got to the point about shoes, I was like, Yo, homeboy is not going to put his his shoes into the water and then hike uh, sometimes a few miles in between uh, lakes and rivers uh, in wet shoes. Like I hate wet like wet shoes drive me nuts. Uh and so uh I did not bring shoes on my hiking canoe trip uh, up in Canada uh instead I got Tivas, like those sandals with a velcro and said that will be good enough that is all I brought okay uh and so uh first day uh canoes on uh I think uh, my maybe my brother's back uh, each each uh canoe people group, uh, uh, shared the canoe load. Um, and so I was carrying other stuff and I fell into a marsh. I probably was screwing around, fell into a marsh uh, with mud uh, up to my, up to my knees, uh, fighting to get out. If you've ever been into mud like that, it's a fight, fighting to get out. I finally make it back up onto like land. And uh, I realize I have one tiva. Uh, one of my sandals had fallen off into the mud. Uh, we're holding up the line. My youth pastor comes back down, and his eyes. And I've been a, now. I've been a youth pastor. I can only imagine what he was thinking. Like some idiot kid. I was the idiot kid. And uh, he jumped in, tried finding my. He was like, "Dude, you're beat. You have literally one sandal now for the rest of the week." And uh, that. And I survived. Here I am. Uh, and so it was a hard trip story to tell, and uh, and whatnot. My favorite part though of uh, of the trip was every night you would get to the end, you'd you'd have either a backpack or a canoe on your shoulders for a portion of the day. You're sore, you're tired, and you'd get to the end of the night and you'd have the back uh, back rub line, uh, you know, where you get your back scratched. And uh, that line is great. You kind of sit Indian style uh, in a line. And uh, the two people on the end, uh, they're the ones that kind of get the raw end of the deal because they're only getting their back scratched half the time. Uh, But in the middle, uh, especially, you turn, and you're always scratching somebody's back while you're also getting your back scratched. But if you're at the end of the line, half the time you get your back scratched. And kind of the end of the line, at least for us at that camp, we're like, that was a sacrificial spot. Like everybody fought for like kind of the middle spots. No one wanted to be on either two ends. Now, if you know my personality, or maybe you can relate to my personality, I love sacrificing. I love being at the end of the line. Um, I'm, willing, I'm willing to do that, I, 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 I'm good with that. But here's the issue in my nature, is that I'm good being at the end of the line, having my back scratched only half the time, I'm good with that as long as everybody knows. <laughs> as long as everybody knows my sacrifice, I then become quote unquote good with it. I want everybody to know, it's somewhat human nature. And I've kind of grown up in the church, I've kind of grown up in this world now. I'm now 38 years old. Uh, and this kind of mindset of, uh, I'll scratch your back, but let me make it be known. When it comes time to get my back scratched, you better scratch my back. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. And that, that's kind of how this life works. But, but in Christ, in Christ's uh, economy, in Christ's uh, uh, ecosystem, uh, we, we see kind of a different mindset. In Christ, if he is our number one, uh, then, then him as my number one, I can treat you as if you're number one and, want, and expect nothing in return. Because after all, if Christ is my number one, he's the God of this universe, what do you have to offer me that I can't get from Christ? <laughs> You see, Christ kind of puts things upside down. And so here we are at this dinner party uh, where, where Jesus is, is looking at religion. It's, remember, remember the setting of the scene that we're looking at. We're in Luke chapter 14. We're at this dinner party with the Pharisees. We're at this dinner party uh, with all these religious leaders, religion, religion, religion. And uh, and, G- and they bring a, a crippled man in as a prop and uh, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath and they're all mad about it. And Jesus basically calls them hypocrites. That, hey, you should always be showing compassion passion, not just uh, uh, six days of the week, not seven days, and uh, calls them hypocrites of sorts. And, uh, and so here at the same dinner party with all these religious leaders, Jesus is noticing in their culture, the way they handle, handle dinner settings, a whole bunch of religious, religious leaders saying, oh, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll do for you, but you better do for me when my time comes. This is the religious way of thinking. But as we think about this from Christ's perspective, Jesus now is going to lean in and give us his perspective on how he, the way he handles religion and life and, and all things relationship with God, he handles it just a little bit differently. So Jesus leans in, puts him on blast again, uh, and says this. Uh, now he told uh, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, uh, when when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at in the place of Honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, uh, and he be invited, uh, he and he who invited you both will come to you and say, Get your place, uh, give your place to this person, and then you will begin uh, with shame to take the lowest place. But when you invite go and sit at the lowest place so that when the best seat uh, best so when your host comes he may say to you friend move up higher uh, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted Jesus is talking about this uh this kind of like this dinner scene and this was uh, in the ancient uh, ancient East like this is something that would would happen often now, this is kind of how they handle they had like this this shame uh, prestige kind kind of culture where you earn, 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 and there was a place of shame kind of built into that system. And so if I'm the host, uh, on the right side, this is my best friend. This is the most, what I would view as the most prestigious person. I would give him this seat. Second would be here. And then working on way down uh, would be less and less and less and less and less and less prestigious. Uh, But the most prestigious would be the right, then the left, and then work its way down so that if you're at the bottom of the table, you would be, in my eyes, the least prestigious person in the room. And so what Jesus is is noticing is that at at this dinner scene that he's been invited to, he's noticing all these Pharisees, these religious leaders, sizing each other up fighting oh, okay i'm going to sit here or i'm going to sit here or i should be here they're all they're all eyeing each other sizing each other up and trying to say hey there's a religious pecking order as to where i should sit in relationship to the host and and i don't know i don't think we know where jesus was sat but i can only imagine he's looking at it and saying man man if you only if you only really only really knew so jesus is speaking into this dinner scene and just giving everyday common wisdom. Listen, guys, if you come to the table and you jump in, you walk into the room like a boss, and you're like, oh, this must be my seat. Should it not be your seat, all you're going to experience is shame. Should this not be your seat, all you're going to experience is being humbled. And the only thing that makes you walk into this room and think this is your seat is your pride. If you just want to have a common everyday uh, wisdom, the best thing for you to do is to go to the lowest seat and say, hey, this, you know, this is, this, this is where, where I should sit. And then what happens is if you're sitting here, the host will say in front of everybody, no, dude, 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 not here. Come here. Dude, this is your seat. And then everybody in the room gets to know that and see that. Jesus is now saying this to a groom full of Pharisees where some of them have wounded pride. Some of them thought they should be sitting here, but they're lower. Some of them are, are now feeling elite. Some of them are feeling awesome and prestigious because they got to sit uh, towards the, the top of the, of the pecking order. And what Jesus is saying is uh, better to be called up than to call attention to yourself. Uh, why, why, why boast that you should be here when, when really let the host decide that? Jesus is talking about his kingdom. His kingdom. Jesus is talking about the way his, his kingdom functions, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first and that God will raise people up. And we, we, maybe our social settings, uh, maybe our social settings don't really have settings like this. Maybe they do. Sometimes they do. Uh, we kind of see this a little bit still at weddings, like this is talking about. Uh, but, uh, and I think what's more common for us is that we'll get on social media and we'll see a dinner party. We'll see a, 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 a get together and we didn't get invited to it, and we'll be like, well, what? Why well, I should be there. I should be there. Like, that's my best friend. Why am I, am I not there? We see that sometimes in our own little thinking, especially when it comes to social media and these dinner parties. Uh, one of the things that I do often is travel, and I, I, like to, I like to drive. I like to listen to audiobooks, so I actually look for reasons sometimes uh, to drive. And one of the things that I have found uh, is, uh, in the United States, there is one state uh, that is uh, is known for breeding uh, the worst drivers. I don't think in the United States. I actually think that... In, on planet Earth, now having traveled a little bit internationally and seeing some seeing some really bad drivers where there are no laws on the road, I would actually say this state is worse than those areas. Uh, these are bad drivers now, but I'm not going to put you on blast. If you know, if you're from this state, you know who you are. Uh, that you are the worst drivers in the union. The people from said state, uh, they would be ones to to read a meme like this and not know what is wrong with it. This is a meme of, some, of people driving uh, in the left lane and, and saying, like, if, uh, if you don't understand why this is wrong, then you are the reason we have to put directions on shampoo bottles. Uh, that, that this is obviously wrong. Uh, And you should be driving in the slow lane, not the fast lane, but people from said state, they do this all the stinking time. They are the absolute worst. Now, in New Hampshire, when I got my driver's license, uh, I got 100 on my written and 100 on my driving. So if you're watching this, uh, you guys, I am the best driver on the planet, uh, according to the state of New Hampshire, is basically what I take from that, right? Uh, but no, the whole reason I'm sharing about drivers and whatnot is uh, because there's this concept that I, was, I heard about in one of the books I was reading about illusory uh, superiority. Here's how it's defined. Illusory uh, superiority is a condition of cognitive bias wherein a person overestimates their own qualities and abilities in relationship in relation to the same qualities and abilities of other people. Meaning we come into a room where we we, we have a skill set, we have an ability, and we start pumping ourselves up in comparison to everybody else. On the basis of the same uh, skill sets that are, are kind of being tested. So when it comes to to driving, what this what this this, this there's been a lot of studies around this subject matter. Uh, one of the studies was uh, trying to compare who is worse at this, Sweden or the United States. I don't know why those two countries were picked, but those are the two countries that were picked. They studied their driving in in regards to skill and safety. They they uh, they studied 161 students, and in that once they they took a whole bunch tests and measures and did all their things, then they asked people to rank themselves. How do you think you did in comparison to everybody else? When it comes to skills, the United States, in this study, said 93% of the participants said that they would place themselves in the top 50%. Mathematically not possible. That means, what, 43% of the people that said I'm above average were actually below average. Uh, when, it come, when it came to uh, safety, uh, similar results, 88% of the people in the United States said, I am a safe driver uh, above the, uh, in the top half. We see this in academics, a study that was done, the same type of a study was done at the uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where 68% of participants in academics said that they were in the top, that they viewed themselves as in the top 25 of their school academically. 68% thought they were in the top 25%. Another study did uh, took a whole bunch of grammar and other things, and uh, took kind of took a group of people, uh, took a test before a test before them where they they had to do some basic skills type stuff, Uh, and then according to how they did, uh, they broke it down into uh, four groups: the top 25, the top 25%, then 25, then 25, finally to the lowest 25%, and they found that those with the highest uh, illusory uh, superiority were those in the bottom 25%. The those that did the worst thought themselves to have done uh, the very best. They had the biggest gap in what, how they viewed themselves. That brings us into a dinner setting like this, where we start looking at other people and saying, on the pecking order, I should be close to the top. So if you're watching this, maybe pause this right now and maybe journal or think about, or maybe talk with your family. Why is humility attractive in others, but hard to personally live out? Think about that. Maybe pause the, the filming or whatever you're doing. Uh, but the point is, is that this is a hard concept. It's a hard concept to live out, to voluntarily move down the table, to let others maybe have credit for my work, to maybe, to maybe, maybe let another coworker uh, have credit or maybe have, a, have a praise from, uh, from, the, from my peers or from the boss when I'm trying to blow my own horn. Or maybe I'm a sibling, and why, why, why would I give credit to another sibling when I myself want to be the apple of my parents' eyes? To be self-serving, to try to, to try to work our way up the pecking order just for me to get mine, that's something that should never be in us as Christians or honestly in our churches. I'm thankful for a church that has gone into Bayville uh, to, to, uh, to love people that need Jesus. That is sacrificing things here in Tom's River to do that. Why? Because we care about people outside of ourselves. What Christ is is saying in this section is basically what we can what we can read into it as Christians is that best seat or worst seat. What does it matter if I'm in Christ? What does it matter if I have Christ? Best seat or worst seat? At the end of the day, what does it matter to sit to the right or to the left of the host? What does it matter if I have Christ? I have everything. What can you give me that Christ has that uh, can't that Christ can't give me? What what if I where I sit at the table? What does it matter if Christ has sat me at a table in the presence of my Enemies. What do you have to offer me that Christ can't provide? So, where I sit at the end of the day, what does it matter? So, here's where Jesus now uh, goes on to kind of continue to put these Pharisees, these religious leaders on blast. He said, uh, and he said to also uh, the man who had invited him, now he's speaking to that individual. Uh, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do you not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, uh, lest lest they also invite you in return, uh, and you will be repaid. Uh, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be paid at the resurrection of the just." Now, having a dinner party and hosting uh, your friends and family, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, We should do that. Uh, We should take care of our own, take care of our family. That's all great and wonderful. And, uh, And so all that being great, that's to be expected. But here's what's not expected, especially in that culture. And Jesus now is talking to a room where there was a crippled person, but he was only brought there as a prop to try to trap Jesus. He didn't really get an invite. He got, he brought, brought in as a trap. Uh, And so uh, their dinner parties didn't have the lame. Their dinner parties didn't have the crippled. Their dinner parties didn't have the poor. Uh, And so he's speaking to a room devoid of all of these things. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you're going to invite your friends and your family, why not also invite the blind, the lame, the crippled? But no, in that culture, if you're going to have a dinner party, you're going to put out the expense you're gonna do all this. You're going to invite, you're gonna look out there and you're gonna say, oh, you have money, you sit here. Uh, you have power, you have influence, you sit here. Oh, you know so-and-so and I wanna get in with so-and-so. You sit there and you start gathering an invite list for the people that can benefit you. I'm going to invite, I'm going to invite you all oh, because once a year, you throw that epic ranger, right? And if I invite you to my little dinner party, I might get an invite to your epic ranger. And so I'm gonna invite you so that later I can be invited. I'm inviting to get, I'm inviting to be repaid. God is saying, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Invite for personal gain? That's what politicians do best. Rather, as children of God, uh, rather than trying to further your, your career, why not, in, why not let your invite, the, your being an inclusive uh, person, uh, bringing people to the table, why not use an invite to build the kingdom of God? And when you humbly give to those that can't repay you, God notices, that's what Jesus says at the end in the resurrection of the just, in his resurrection, when Christ returns, he, he notices this and you, are, you will be rewarded then. And trust me, a reward from God Almighty is a much better reward than anything I can get here on planet earth. We are commanded to reach out to the needy. We're commanded to minister to those that need help themselves, to, to to quietly minister to people that no one in society often sees. Uh, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before. One of my favorite authors, every time he writes a book, I'm quick to get it, uh, is Bob Goff. He tells great stories in it relates it to some great concepts. And one of the things he talks about is at his house, uh, he has this giant table, uh, and that that house he has, he does a lot with uh, people in poverty, and a lot with, uh, especially teens that can't help themselves, and so um, he does a lot of good for those that uh, no one else sees. Uh, but he also knows dignitaries, and, uh, and I think specifically in Uganda, and so he's had a whole slew of people uh, at his table, from the least of these to the, in the world's the greatest of these. And each time he says, uh, one of the things he does is he asks everybody from the least of these to the greatest of these dignitaries um, to get under his table and write their name under his, his table. And so when I read that in his book, uh, I've taken on that habit. This is a picture uh, from underneath uh, my, my table. We ask everybody to write their name uh, in just one word. Uh, oftentimes you forget. So if you've been to my house and I forgot to do this, I'm sorry. Next time, grab a Sharpie marker and write under my, under my, under my table table. Uh, I I hope that someday that my kids will get this and they will see that so many people, uh, have been around my table, uh, our table and that I want them to continue that same sort of a practice. I hope that there is names that would be around my table. Perhaps the whole world would know that fine. Great. Whatever. But I hope that their names in my table that few people know, but they were known at that table. Uh, my, here's my, here's my, my point in, in sharing this and just walk in my shoes, but I think you can relate to this. If, if my goal is to spread the gospel, my goal is to go into all the world uh, preaching Jesus, which is the goal for you and I, that means that there are going to be people at my table that need to be at my table to God willing, hear about the name of Jesus. They themselves do not know they need to be at the table, but I hope that with an invite, they come to sit around my table and in conversation, we can have a conversation around Jesus. But if you walk in my shoes as a leader of a church, there are hundreds of people that would desire to be at my table, that would say they need to be at my table. And if I give into every single need in the church and need for my time, I will never reach my neighbors with a seat around my table practically, that can that cannot happen. So there are going to have to be times where I choose to invite people that do me no good outside of the hopes that they will one day say yes to Jesus. And that means that there are going to be times where I'm sitting here and I, even though you want to be at my table, I cannot invite you. And it's going to cause drama behind the scenes. It's actually going to do me harm to not make the time, but instead invite, I, I could name 55 names, neighbors right now from my neighborhood to say no to you and to invite them to my table with the hopes of the gospel. And practically, it's going to mean that Todd, who lives across the street from me, him and his wife Doris, they love Jesus. They go to this church, that there are going to be times where they might need to come to my table. And I'm going to say, no, I've invited so-and-so to the table. And they're going to look out their window and see me having a rip-roaring good time with unbelievers with the hope of a gospel conversation. And they didn't get an invite what would we do about that? What would we feel about that? And it comes to to our minds and it should beg somewhat the question of who's invited to your table. Is it only the people in your sphere of influence? Is it the only people that can benefit you? What about the people that offer no benefit to you? So again, maybe pause this filming, pause this video wherever you're watching it and maybe ponder this question. Maybe ask it with your spouse, ask it with your kids, ask it with your close friends where you sometimes double host, uh, a co-host uh, dinner, dinner, dinner parties. Maybe ask this, how can we open our eyes to those overlooked by society? People that are smelly, people that you might think, Man, if I invite them to my house, they might steal something. Uh, people that, man, if my kids are at the table, they might say something that, man, I'm going to have to explain to my kids after the dinner party. Like, let's be real. This is what we're talking about. But who are you going to invite to the table so they feel included? <laughs> because oftentimes, if we're, if we're willing to invite someone to the table, and we're showing relationship, we're showing care, it's those moments where those people are willing to hear then the hard and needed truth. Hey, you're broken. (laughs) And you and I live in this broken world. We're broken, we're both broken. But God so loved the world that he sent his son to come to this broken world (laughs) and to take our brokenness, take our sin. All you have to do is you have to confess that you are one of those broken people, that you are a sinner and that Jesus died for you and that you and I get to have life in him because he proved it. He rose from the grave three days later so he can offer us life and the forgiveness of sins. I can go someplace with a bullhorn and shout those things. You might be effective, I don't know. But perhaps the most effective moment for that type of a conversation is gonna be right here with the person that hasn't been invited to any other table, but got invited here. A book you should check out is the gospel uh, comes uh, with a house key, What Jesus is saying is forget about the movers and the shakers, the powerful, the famous, the rich, but invite people to the table that no one else sees and there you show compassion. If you're only worried about the movers and the shakers, you put up a wall and you struggle to show other people compassion as Jesus shows compassion. It means we have to do uh, the hard things. We have to hear the hard things and those hard things, doing the hard things, saying the hard things, those best settings to have those happen is right around the table. The big thought for us uh, in, this, in this online experience is, is simply this. The humble ones are the blessed ones. The humble ones that are, are willing to walk into a dinner scene and a dinner party and say, you know what, I'm going to sit here. And if this is my spot, great. And if it's not great, whatever, who cares? I'm just going to love the people around me and have a rip-roaring good time here where I sit. And if the host invites me up, great. The humble one here is the blessed one at the end of the day with that sort of a perspective. Or the humble one that's gonna sit here as a, as a, as a host and say, yeah, you could do a lot for me. Yeah, you throw a wicked good party. Uh, yeah, but, but he's never been invited. She came to church the other week and uh, she's only been here three months and she doesn't know anybody and maybe she needs a seat. <laughs> Oh, that that person over there, I know in, in talking to them last night that they work so many hours a week and they come to church for their social gathering and that they live in isolation. They feel lonely. They, they, they literally said that. Ah, forget them. I'll invite No. The humble ones are the blessed ones to bring this person to the table. A big name uh, in our world that's, not building God's kingdom at the end of the day is just a name. A small name in our world, but a name that is building God's kingdom, that's a great name in the kingdom of God. What I know as I read through this and, and what I know as I read just the scope of all the scripture is that God knows me by name, that the Lamb of God would sacrifice for me, Jesus Christ would die for me, and then I get written, my name gets written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, where God knows me by name. He knows your name, he knows my name. If you've put faith in In Jesus Christ. And so, are you more concerned about your name or the name of God? Because that changes how you sit at the table, that changes how you invite people. The way uh, the way uh, I, I'm personally struggling with this right now is I got done writing a manuscript for a book, and uh, and so now part of that journey is now I talk to literary agents that would help me get in with publishers. That's the best way to do that, uh, but l- these literary agents, like one on their website, said they get 4,000 uh, manuscripts a year, and so they they ask for proposals on to help narrow it down. It's basically like a resume, and uh, this is one of the ones that came up recently. What what I'm finding is that uh, I'm sending in what it would be a 50 55 page proposal more often than not and I'm sending that in and uh, I'm getting a rejection within the first 24 hours so they didn't even have time uh, to read uh, my whole proposal but on the front end they ask you to have like every every uh, literary agent gives you like a whole bunch of things to talk about uh, as far as like your resume and uh, and every single one of them has something about platform personal marketing network this is something that I was writing out this past week and uh, it basically is asking like who do you know? Uh, like what connections do you have that you can uh, that you can promote uh, that you can uh, utilize to help build a name and help promote this book? How many social media followers do you have? Uh, some of them won't talk to you unless you have ten thousand uh, so at least as a starting point. Social media followers or any uh, specific uh, network outlet. And uh, and so what I'm finding is I think this right here is where uh, people these literary agents aren't even reading the manuscript uh, a portion a sample of my of my of my book because I don't know anybody. Uh, I am who I am because of a bunch of no-name people in the world's eyes invested into a nobody like me. And you know what? I'm better for it. I'm better for it. I'm better for it when uh, a guy like Steve Chartier has built a a super successful company. Now he now he's left it and and taken his wealth and his his, his um, philanthropy or whatever the word is. Uh, now he's funding a, a ministry and leading a ministry over in Malawi to to build schools and leadership and it's this whole great thing and he's he's funding the majority of it. And every time I go to New Hampshire, this guy who who has so many resources and and, and so much uh, influence in, in but not. Not known in the world's eyes, but uh, a big name in my life. Every single time I go to New Hampshire, if I was to text him and say, "Hey, can we get breakfast?" He says yes every single time. He's the one that helped me understand about failing forward. <laughs> I'm thankful for uh, a somebody like him to invest in a nobody like me. I'm thankful that uh, when we, when our, when Bayside Chapel got a, a former dean uh, of Bethel Seminary and Dave Ritter, uh, that he came to Bayside. And he started to invest into me, a nobody who was D's get degrees, nowhere near a Dean. Uh, and he invested into me. Uh, we know him. Many of us know him. Many of us watching this might know him. But in, in the scope of this world, no one knows him. But he's a big name in my life. And he invested into a nobody like me. And I'm better for it. He's, they are building God's kingdom. Let me tell you about a situation that happened just a few weeks ago. I I think we had um, our best Sunday ever. (laughs) I think truly our best Sunday ever as a church here uh, in Tom's River and in Bayville. We had 99% of our leaders show up to church. And what I saw was leader after leader having conversation, 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 investing into people. There there is no one prestigious in our our leadership, uh, but... Well, we're building a culture of investing into people, investing into people. One one of the reasons I saw this, and I was so stoked as a church, it wasn't because we had great attendance. We really didn't have great attendance. It wasn't because we had like this wild giving week. We really didn't have a wild giving week. Uh, What made that Sunday so great and so meaningful was that Ava Koash, maybe a year ago, got into a mentoring relationship with Maddie Regas. They went on for six months. It's a great relationship. They, they both grew through the process. About the same time, uh, Graham Wilson is investing into uh, Brandon Regas. And they mentor each uh, He mentored him, and it got to the end, and they both, Ava and Graham, were like, hey, now it's your time to mentor other people. And what I saw a few weeks ago, uh, and this is just one, one piece of, a, hey, a great Sunday, was Brandon sitting in church with a guy named Travis. <laughs> Travis is just a 19-year-old dude out of college, or out of high school, finding his way in college. He's a young kid trying to find his way. Brandon's been there. So they sit in church together. They're in a mentoring relationship together. And after church, they sit over in our living room and they're just talking life, talking, uh, applying some of our, our core values, our endless growth values to life. It's a 23, 24, I think, no, 25, 25-year-old investing into a 19 year old no one in this world is going to know Brandon's name. He's not going to be a household name, but I can tell you, can, you can bet your life on it. Travis will know his name forever. That's a good thing. Same thing, Maddie was here at church talking to Faith, Faith, a 19-year-old girl, and they were talking about getting dinner on Monday night and how they were gonna start their mentoring process. Maddie won't be a household name, God, you know, very likely uh, by the time she dies, but, but Faith will know her name. <laughs> And in six months, the hope is that Travis and Faith, that they'll start mentoring other people. What I'm describing is discipleship. What I'm describing is that as Ava and Graham start mentoring other people and they look to repeat that process, Brandon and, and Maddie are doing the same thing and that one day they're going to start mentoring other people. But now, but now Faith, and, uh, Faith and Travis, they're going to start mentoring other people and they're going to, that's multiplication. <laughs> that is growing exponentially. And that is where a bunch of no name, everyday, ordinary people say, you know what? I'm going to do for one what I wish I could do for all. I'm gonna use my time, I'm gonna use my skills, I'm gonna use my resources to to invest into one as if they are everything to me, as a way to love absolutely my everything in Jesus Christ. So who are you investing into? Who are you pouring your life into? Who are you inviting to the table? Here's my challenge to you this week, right now, whenever you watch this, to use your time, your skills, and your resources to bless somebody else, somebody that cannot repay you. Do that because it's the way of Christ. Do that because it's going to force you to look at your life and to say to yourself that, hey, you're right now, you're sitting there, you're like, hey, great challenge for people that have skills. Great challenge for people that have time. Great challenge for people that have resources. Well, right now, all the lies that are floating around in your head, I would like you to do one thing. Write it down, stamp it, and send it back to the pit of hell where it came from. Because if you are a child of God, God don't make garbage. God don't make something that's good for nothing that what I know in Christ Jesus is that you are God's workmanship, that God is writing poetry through your life, that God has something for you to do to build his kingdom. So when you see good for nothing, God sees good for something, go and do something. Take your little and invest it into somebody else and watch God magnify it. This week, invest into somebody your time. Maybe it's just simply sitting down with somebody going through a hard time. They don't need your advice. They just need to be known and to be heard. And you can spare an hour and have a cup of coffee and say three words. Maybe it is your skills. Maybe you can tutor somebody and and do it for free. Maybe you have resources financially and there is some single mom that car broke down and, and you're wondering, hey, I just got my bonus. I don't know what to do with it. And I would really love to build a deck to have a barbecue this this year, but I'll help the mom with her bill instead. That, that deck project can wait till next year. Whatever it might be, invest into somebody this week who cannot pay you back because I believe wholeheartedly that that is the way of Christ.